The following presentation was produced by the Buddhist Society of Victoria. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, so let us uh, start the questions. Okay, so here we have a uh, fairly long one, so let's see what it has to say here. Hey Ajahn, I shared with you a couple of years ago, my dad passed away here. A day or two after, my sister and I were staying with my mama. The doorbell went and I went to answer and no one was there. It went again and my sister went and no one was there. <laughs> A plant my father had for 15 years, which never flowered, bloomed in those days. <laughs> On the day of the memorial service, dad's body went to the university. I gave a little final talk and quoted the story of the Buddhist caterpillar uh, turning into a butterfly. Uh, when I got back to my mum's, I was sitting on the steps and a caterpillar fell and landed on my trousers. <laughs> okay. This all could uh, be uh, something or nothing. Uh, uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, it brought a little joy into our lives in a sad time. Uh, 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 okay, P.S. Nothing else has happened since. Uh, <laughs> okay, that's very interesting, isn't it? Uh, so thank you for sharing that. Uh, um, so this, yeah, this is kind of a fairly known thing to happen. The doorbell goes and then there's nobody there. There's quite a few stories like that I've heard from elsewhere as well. Uh, so uh, especially when it happens twice, uh, you wonder whether something is going on there. Uh, and... Uh, uh, the plant which is flowering, etc., etc. It's very interesting that these things kind of happen and you wonder whether there is some kind of connection there because very often what happens, of course, is when someone passes away is that very often they hang around for a while. They are attached to the family and the house that they've been living in for a long time. And because there is often some degree of interaction between the various realms... Yeah, it's not as if we are completely separated from each other. There's some interaction going on sometimes. So because of that, things like this may happen in a kind of uh, interaction between a, a realm of the departed and our realm. And very often, as you say, it lasts maybe only a short while, like a day or two, and then it disappears as if the person has now passed on and moved on to a new existence and is not there anymore and there's lots and lots of stories like that. And sometimes it's just like a, a felt presence in the house. You can feel as if something is there. And suddenly one day the felt presence is gone. It's as if the house is empty again. Yeah, it's kind of a, it's an experience you can have if you are sensitive to these things. Also very common. So uh, it's, it's hard to know exactly what is going on. Sometimes it's just wishful thinking. We see these things. But uh, the number of things you're talking about here is quite significant. So maybe this is one of those cases where there is some interaction between the various realms. It's like your father saying goodbye, perhaps, or kind of moving on. And then, uh, uh, you know, this, these things happening. It's also very common to have visions of the departed. And sometimes those visions, they happen before you actually know that they have passed away. This is quite common. Someone has a vision of their parents or whatever who had passed away. And then later on they get the phone call saying, actually, your mother or father just passed away. That's kind of eerie, isn't it? And again, there seems to be some interaction there between the various realms. And this is what seems to be what is going on. 
So, uh, and uh, of course, what we do then as Buddhists, what the right thing to do in that situation is just to wish them well. Yeah, if you see someone there, wish them well, do some act of merit on their behalf, uh, do an act of charity or something, and say, I do this for you, Dad, I do this for you, Mum, who's passed away, or any other relative who's passed away. Uh, and then you are kind of doing uh, the Buddhist thing, and often they will be able to experience your kindness, your kind intentions, uh, precisely because of that interaction between these realms. Uh, there will be some interaction there going on. Uh. So, um, good. That's a, that's a nice little story. So, uh, thank you for uh, bringing that up. Uh, and uh, I'll put that to one side so I can read it again later on. Uh. <laughs> Okay, next one. Ajahn Ramali, you talked about five hindrances today. Uh, I really like how you give everyday examples to shed some light on how subtle these hindrances are that we often don't realize. Uh, would you please give a few more examples? Uh, everyday life, social interactions, relationship, workplace, environment, etc. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, um, Okay, so uh, I uh, uh, so obviously uh, I I already mentioned the example, the typical example of pe people saying bad things. Yeah, this is kind of a classic example of the hindrances arising in everyday life, uh, because uh, maybe your work colleagues or family members or whatever. Uh, when you live close to somebody, closeness always leads to friction. Uh, and that's just and the reason for that is because we have different perceptions, different experiences of the world, and other people will not always have the same experiences, and they will do things that are counter to how we would like to experience the world. So it naturally leads to friction when you are around people a lot, yeah, because of that difference in perception of things. So you just have to be able to deal with that, yeah, in in the daily daily life situation, and this is one of the. Uh, important things uh, um, and uh, uh, so one of the I think one of the things that we often need to do to be able to deal with these problems uh, is always to make sure we have enough time out uh, yeah so that we kind of have a time to recharge and to reset our mental landscape uh, so you have you know even during the work day you can kind of relax for a while and take a one minute meditation or something just close your eyes and kind of allow things to get a bit of distance to things uh, and the same thing in daily life as well in family life get that distance sometimes uh, make sure you have enough time out during the day to kind of reset your bearings a little bit uh, so that you don't allow yourself to be so influenced by these things uh. Uh, and uh, that influence can be desires or it can be ill will. But again, ill will is really the place where you kind of need to uh, you need to work with things. Uh, and one of the big problems that people often have is they find workplace very difficult. Uh, it's a very common thing. Yeah, I don't know for how many people. Some people really enjoy their work, but some people find work really hard. Uh, and very often that's because we have to deal with people that are different from us, different ideas. They're not Buddhist or they're kind of into other things or they want to control the situation so that they can actually, you know, uh, make their own kind of progress in the, in the organization, go smoothly or whatever it is. Uh, and of course, that is one of the hard things. And the way to deal with other people, I'm going to talk more about this tomorrow, is always to remember the red light simile. Yeah? People do things because they have been conditioned in a certain way, because they can't really be different. 
And even though you happen to be, you know, the bear the brunt of that problem, huh? because you happen to be there, it's got nothing to do with you. It's impersonal. Huh? When people do bad things or they say bad things or there's office politics or whatever, huh? uh, then it is always the, the right way of thinking about things. It's got nothing really to do with you. Huh? Don't take it personally. Huh? It's the other person just playing out their inner programming. They're like robots. There's a program that has been kind of laid down a long time ago, and now it's being played out, and they don't have much choice in the matter. And once you realize they don't have any choice, and they would rather be kind, caring, good people, because I think we all know that kindness leads to happiness. Deep down we know that, but we can't stop ourselves from being unkind sometimes. Once you get that, it's actually quite not easy perhaps, but it's possible to develop that sense of compassion for anyone, especially people who have bad qualities. So this is kind of a universal way of looking at other people, and it's a very useful and very powerful technique to overcome um, uh, ill will and overcome negative feelings towards people around us that are difficult. And there's always going to be people around us that are difficult, not even necessarily because they are difficult, but simply because of difference in perception and way of looking at the world. And then uh, this happens uh, as a consequence. So we just have to kind of carry on with that, try it again and again and again, and gradually you get into that mood of looking at people in a completely different way and then you overcome so much of the problems and the hindrances also and the defilements get reduced because of that. So again, focus on the first two hindrances and remember also that as you go through your daily life that when things go against your expectations, remember that the sensory world, the sensual world, is always going to let you down. What do you expect? Of course things go the wrong way. Of course you don't get what you want. Of course the world, when you turn on the TV, the world kind of is falling apart. Sometimes it's not falling apart, but sometimes it is. And you should really expect that. Okay. We. Okay, <laughs> uh, we have one, two, three questions on one sheet. That's really unfair, isn't it? You really kind of <laughs> no, no. That's very wise of you. You kind of get it, get it in there. It's very, uh, very smart. So let's see what you have to say, dear Ajahn Bamali. Uh, thank you for your wonderful teaching. This is my first time in retreat. My mind is at ease and happy. I am concerned about what will happen when I am back to real life after retreat. Uh, is, what is real life? Is this real life or is it real life when you go back afterwards? I'm not so sure. Yeah, This is more real, isn't it? The life out there is like a dream sometimes. It just passes by here. So uh, sometimes we get the idea of real life a little bit in reverse. Anyway, I know I am a controlling mother who manages my kids' life and worry about her welfare too much sometimes. <laughs> okay. What is the skillful love and relationship between parents and children? Okay, so uh, one of the things to remember about your child is that uh, it is not your responsibility if your child goes uh, does strange or wrong things sometimes. Uh, remember that your child has their own personality. In Buddhism, a child comes from a past, uh, a distant past through many, many lives, and they come already preformed into this world uh, with an existing personality. So your ability to influence your child is quite limited, actually. Uh, and if your child turns out to be a good child, uh, 
it is not, uh, you, you shouldn't necessarily be praised for that. <laughs> and if your child turns out to be a bad child, you're not responsible. Yeah, of course, you are a little bit responsible, but only a very, to a very, very small amount. So don't, first of all, don't feel too much responsibility. Secondly, uh, uh, secondly don't uh, expect too much of your child because your child will come with certain characteristics, certain abilities, and it will not always be able to get all straight A's and all their exams. It will not necessarily go to the best universities and all of that. And uh, I uh, and uh, so don't expect too much of your child. Don't invest too much of your identity in the child. And this is often what we do. We tend to invest our own identity and our own sense of who we are in how our child performs. So if our child performs badly or our child kind of plays up in the presence of strangers or whatever, we feel terrible. What? You don't, don't behave properly. Yeah, this is, and it's about you, isn't it? It's about you being a good parent. Yeah, if it's someone else's child playing up, you don't, couldn't care less. But if it's your child, then it really matters because you feel that it's about you as a parent. Your identity is what is being kind of challenged by your child's behavior. So don't try to, try to avoid that. Allow your child to be your child. Just be, just be kind, just be caring. And one of the beautiful things that come from that is that when you have less attachment in this way, less attachment to how your child behaves, you actually have more clarity that attachment, that desire that uh, makes wants, wants you to make your child be in a certain way uh, leads you to an inability to see what, it, your, what, what is uh, in your child's best interest. What you're interested in is what is, happens to you. You're interested in, in you looking good, yeah? And your child's interest actually is, uh, you're still interested in that, uh, but it is a little bit more secondary. Uh, not secondary, perhaps, but not as important, uh. But if you are able to allow your child to be, you can stand back more, less attachment, less desire, and you can see what is truly in your child's best interest. And very often that is, your job is just to be kind, to be supportive, to do the right thing, and then just allow your child to get on with life, not be too demanding. And so that is... Anyway, that's a little bit of advice. It's hard to do. It's easy to say. So, uh, uh, especially for someone who hasn't got any children himself, it's kind of uh, easy to say. But Okay, number two. If I think my kids play too much computer games, how should I stop him or her? <laughs> I think I never heard of a kid who does not play too much computer games. I think they all play too much computer games. Uh, how could I stop him or her? I have no idea how you can do that. Absolutely no idea. You, I guess you have to, sometimes maybe you have to set limits on your children. Say, after a certain time, no computer games. And you have a deal with them. They kind of hand in the game at a certain time. And after that, no more computer games. Or you, your, your computer is kind of set with a certain thing that the games stop at a certain point. I don't know, I don't know what can be done. So, but it's good to set certain limits for your children. Yeah. And then, and then actually agree with your child that it's good to have limits. Uh, say, sit down with him or her and say, okay, listen, is, do you think it's a good idea not to play so many games? If you think, let's set some limits together and then find a way to uh, enforce that so, so that, you know, uh, uh, it, it kind of, it really does stop. Uh, you have, sometimes you have to have kind of a, something that blocks the games, otherwise it's not going to happen. If it's just going to rely on willpower, there's no way it's going to happen. You have to have something which stops it. Uh, 
I spoke to one of the retreatants here the other day, and she was telling me that sometimes she can't put down her iPhone or her Samsung or whatever it is. Uh, and uh, then she reads it at a time when she doesn't really want to read those news, and it messes up her meditation practice. Uh, and sometimes what you have to do, if you don't want to use your uh, smartphone at certain times, uh, you have to give it to someone else. Uh, Ask them to put it away, hide it, and then give it back to you at a certain time the next day so that you have certain hours free. And the reason why you have to do that is because your willpower is never going to be strong enough to be able to stop you from looking at that that smartphone when the desire arises. So you have to use strategies like that that actually make it impossible for you to access it. And something magical happens when you do that. If it really make it impossible, you stop desiring it uh, because you know it's impossible. Uh, if you have access to it, uh, the desire will always be there in the background because you know you can see it whenever you want. Uh. So something about making things accessible that is really nice. You don't think about it so much. It's like being a monk. I never really think about a meal in the afternoon ever uh, because I can't have it, so no point in thinking about it. Uh. Yeah, so it just doesn't happen. Uh. And uh, so the things you can't have, they kind of, after a while, they go out of your mind. It's not a problem anymore. So, But if you can make this agreement with your child, it is more powerful, uh, and you teach them some responsibility at the same time, uh, and you say, I think this is a good idea, and what do you think? Do you agree with that? It's kind of have limits. And they might say, well, grudgingly, okay, maybe, um, and some, or something like that. Uh, and then uh, it, it makes things easier. Uh, in the end, if they don't agree, you may still have to set limits, and that's okay, because sometimes you have more clarity than your child has. Number three, what action plan shall I do to increase his or her blessings and keep them safe? Uh, the action plan should be to be kind, to be caring, to be supportive, not to be too demanding, and then uh, uh, just... Uh, uh, allow them to kind of grow on their own right. Don't force them to be good Buddhists uh, because that's going to put them off Buddhism for the rest of their life. Uh. <laughs> and uh, just allow them to develop in the right way. And if you are a good mum uh, or a good dad, I, did you say? You are, I think a good mum, right? Uh, and then um, uh, when you... Uh, then uh, they will actually often come around and they will start to look at your life, in, uh, their life, in terms of how you lived because they will realize that you were a good parent. Uh, yeah, and they think you were a good parent. They think, wow, actually, my father, my mother, they were really good. And then they will take an interest perhaps in Buddhist teachings and in spiritual practice and being kind and doing all the right things. Uh, and then things tend to come around. Uh, so, uh, uh, and also expect your child to be rebellious. I, but it's good for children to be rebellious. It's not a bad thing. It's a sign of growing up, becoming independent, doing their own thing. Yeah. So don't don't take it too seriously if they become rebellious. Allow that to happen. Yeah. Sometimes they should be a bit naughty. Yeah. If they're not naughty at all, that is usually a bad sign. Yeah. So naughtiness is good. Yeah. 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 Because they're rebelling a little bit. That's that's an important part of life to be able to rebel a little bit. I was naughty when I was young. I'm sure all of you also have been a bit naughty when you were when you were ch children. That's just part of life. Okay. There you are. So see what happens and enjoy the process. <coughs> Dear Ajahn, I noticed in the Anapanasati Sutta extract uh, that it wasn't mentioned that we need to close our eyes. Uh, does that indicate that in the past people meditate with their eyes open? Uh, 
Uh, I don't think so. I don't think that's what it means. Uh, why it is, it is not mentioned, it may be that it was so blooming obvious that you close your eyes, uh, there was no point in mentioning it. Uh, it's like saying, you know, you... Uh, while you do walking meditation, you should breathe. It doesn't say anywhere that you should breathe, but uh, it's, okay, I'm exaggerating a bit. That's, that's even more obvious. Uh, but it was probably so much part of the culture, yeah, that actually you just closed your eyes. That was just well, well known. Uh, and I think that you will find one of the, as soon as you close your eyes, that's what I find, most people find, I think, is that as soon as you close your eyes, uh, you're shutting out so much of the world. Uh, so much of the impressions that go into your mind straight away are out. Uh, it actually feels peaceful just to close your eyes. Uh, yeah? If you try to meditate with your eyes open, you can become still. St st you can still become still uh, because you can become still even during walking meditation. Uh, but it is not as easy, I would say. It, is not, it doesn't become as profound. It doesn't go as far uh, if you do it that way. Uh, um, there are some people who teach meditation with open eyes, uh, and of course it can have other benefits. It may not lead to the same kind of samadhi and stillness and all of these kind of things. Uh, it can be more uh, a, an exercise in uh, acceptance or just mindfulness, etc., et and that is also okay, uh, but it's, very, it's not likely to lead to the same depth of meditation because there's just too much input coming into your mind. Uh, you want to reduce the input. Uh, in fact, eventually, you want to turn off sight altogether. Yeah? Yeah, there comes a point when you turn it off and literally you're not seeing anything anymore at all. Even kind of, you're not even seeing the back of your eyelids. You're seeing nothing yeah? because it's turned off in your, uh, in, in your brain or in your mind or whatever it is. Uh. So, um, okay. Unrelated question. I'm inspired to continue with my practice in daily life. What is your view of occasionally upgrading from five to eight precepts. Uh, are there more things I can do in daily life to help my spiritual path? Thank you very much. Uh, upgrading from five to eight precepts occasionally, I think that's a nice idea. Maybe especially on weekends or on the Uposita days or whatever, maybe you go to the uh, BSV or to a monastery somewhere and you kind of listen to Dhamma talks and then you can keep eight precepts. That was the practice done at the time of the Buddha. They would go to the monastery and keep the eight precepts for uh, for the Uposada day, for one day usually, one day a fortnight or one day a week, depending on how many Uposada days you count. So uh, would I recommend it? I know some people keep the eight precepts all the time, even in lay life. And I'm astonished when I hear that. I wonder how it's possible to do that in lay life. I wonder, and sometimes people don't actually fare too well when they do that. They, they're often very hungry in the evening and it's actually very hard for them to do this. As a monk, it's quite easy because everything is kind of set up for that lifestyle. But as a layperson, jeepers, I'm, I'm kind of impressed with lay people who can do that. But be very careful because sometimes it's too demanding. And if it is too demanding, it tends to... Uh, it tends to have negative side effects and consequences. You become tired, you become just, uh, you know, you're not really enjoying it anymore. And there should be some inspiration in keeping precepts as well. You should feel that you're doing something good. Yeah, so find a middle way. Don't go too far. The Buddha didn't recommend for lay people to keep eight precepts all at all times, except if you are an anagarika at the monastery, perhaps, then you can do it. Yeah, or an aramika, as they were called at the time of the Buddha. Aramika is like a monastery worker, a bit like an anagarika, and then you can do it. But uh, yeah, so there isn't any absolute answer to that, but uh, try it out, uh, see what happens, and then. Uh, uh, do it, especially if you enjoy it and you feel inspired by it, uh, then 
try, uh, tried out. Uh, Okay, dear Ajahn, thank you for the Dharma talks. There are so much to there is so much to learn. I have a question on meditation. When I watch the breath and a thought comes up, do I push the thought away and continue watching the breath, or should I watch the arising and ceasing of the thought instead, uh, and then move to the breath later on? Uh, thank you very much. So don't push the thought away. Pushing away is almost like a a small act of aversion, or oh, I don't want to see the thought, I want to be on the breath. So don't do that, just go with the flow. Yeah, This is about passive awareness, seeing what is happening, not being involved in things. So if a thought comes up, just kind of observe it, stay with it, and if you really observe it, the thought is going to last very, not very long at all, because it can't really stand the light of awareness, and it just dies down very quickly. Depends on how powerful your awareness is, but usually it dies down very fast again. And then your breath tends to come back almost by itself. It's as if you don't have to do anything. All you have to do is keep your awareness, and the breath kind of returns by itself almost automatically. It's almost as if also when you sit back and you just allow mindfulness to arise, very often you don't actually have to go to the breath, because as mindfulness comes, the breath becomes clear, and then suddenly you find yourself doing breath meditation is almost automatic in a sense uh, and the whole process is very easy and flowing uh. so uh, try to make it as easy as possible as light as possible mm. as little involvement as possible uh, because that is the kind of attitude that will take you into peaceful states of mind uh. Dear Ajahn, thank you for your wonderful teachings. It seems that it is very difficult to attain awakening by being a layman. However, I don't have the confidence to give up my job and family life to pursue monastic lifestyle. What can I do now? <laughs> thank you. <laughs> okay, well, don't, don't worry about awakening because awakening is kind of often way down the track anyway. Yeah? And uh, the number of monastics who are awakened is pretty... Small, yeah, you don't find many monastics who have awakening either, even though there's a greater chance of finding them there, still the numbers are very small. Uh, so what matters is not whether you awaken or not, what matters is whether if you are improving on the path. Uh, as long as you are improving, as long as you're going somewhere, then eventually awakening will happen. Uh, and if it doesn't happen in this life, maybe it will happen in your next life, who knows. Uh, so keep on improving, that is what you want to look out for. And this is... Uh, uh, what the Buddha says in so many places, so many different areas in the suttas, uh, that the only thing you need to be concerned about whenever you make a decision, whenever you do anything, is whether it is going to improve in your wholesome qualities uh, and help you decline in your unwholesome qualities. Uh, and if that is what's happening, then you are on the right track with your lay life, with your monastic life, with your job, with your house, with your relationship. It doesn't matter. All of those things are fine. But what really matters is whether you are improving or not. Uh, and then down the track, if you keep on improving, maybe the day will come when you feel inspired. Oops, now I want to ordain. I want to become a monastic. Because things change. Surprise, surprise. Yeah? <laughs> things change. And suddenly one day you feel that inspiration coming of actually uh, wanting to take that step and ordaining. Like this uh, lady yesterday who said she was getting inspired to ordain. And that's, of course, a, a wonderful thing. Yeah? So um, although that is true, that we should look for improving in good qualities and declining in the bad ones, uh, 
obviously the monastic life is the highway to awakening yeah if you live a monastic life well and that of course is the crucial point you have to live it well so it means that you have to feel natural for you it has to be something you want to do if you do it with too much force you may not be able to live it well anyway then it becomes pointless but if you live, live it well then it of course it is the best way to reach awakening because the core the conditions are very supportive of that and the Buddha laid down the monastic life for that purpose. So that's obviously what it is for. Uh, so uh, keep that at the back of your mind. But in the meantime, just worry about one thing, whether you are improving or not. Uh, and uh, to improve, uh, just remember the very basic thing. Sometimes uh, the only thing you need to remember is kindness. Uh, if you remember kindness, and you can remember that in your daily life, consistently in the way you act, in the way you speak, in the way you think, uh, uh, in all of these things, uh, and uh, of course that also implies avoiding being unkind. Uh, if you can remember that one thing consistently, uh, you're going to go a long, long way on this path. Uh. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm not sure if this is supposed to be answered or not, but this is it says beetles or stones. Uh, so um, <laughs> so that is uh, it's a bit too cryptic for me. So I'm not sure exactly how to answer that one. You're going to have to expand on that question a little bit. Uh, so we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, I'll wait for an expansion tomorrow and then we'll, uh, we'll see what happens. <laughs> okay. Um, Bhante, if the concept of rebirth is fundamental to Buddhism, why is the desire to be reborn a defilement, uh, a conundrum? <laughs> if there is no rebirth for an arahant, what is there? Uh, perhaps in this case the Tibetan idea of coming back as a bodhisattva is more appealing. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, why is the desire to be reborn a uh, a defilement? Well, just because there is a concept of rebirth doesn't mean that rebirth is good. Uh, yeah, there might be rebirth, but that doesn't mean that rebirth is good. It just means that there is rebirth. That's all it means. And of course, the point is that rebirth actually is no good. That's kind of the point. So, But you have to start off with a realistic perspective on life. If you have an unrealistic perspective on life, then you can't deal with the problems. So first of all, is there rebirth or not? Yes or no, you have to get that sorted out. The second question then is, well, is that reality, whatever it is, is it good or bad? What do I have to do with that? So uh, rebirth is bad because it perpetuates suffering. You know, if you saw your past lives and you saw that you've been doing the same uh, thing again and again and again, you get really fed up. You think, what on earth am I doing this for? Going around in circles, uh, doing the same thing endlessly. Yeah, And then you kind of uh, get this feeling of aversion towards being reborn. That's really what it is all about. Uh, when you see that something is completely pointless, you don't do it anymore. Huh? That's kind of just uh, the, the way the human mind works. You get aversion to it, you withdraw from it, uh, and you're no, no longer interested in it, and you want to get off that wheel of rebirth. Uh. So if there is no rebirth for an arahant, what is there? There's happiness. If rebirth is suffering, there's happiness to an arahant. Uh. Yeah, simple as that. Uh. Happiness, no rebirth. Yay! Perhaps in this case, the Tibetan ideal of coming back as a bodhisattva is more appealing. Uh. It is appealing only if you think rebirth is happiness. Uh then it is appealing. And the reason why people think rebirth is happiness is because they have an identity, or they think they have an identity, they perceive an identity that they would like to continue existing in the future. Yeah, Because you would like to continue existing in the future, 
But if that identity is a delusion, which according to Buddhism it is, then things are really different. If you remove that sense of identity, things suddenly look upside down. What you thought was nice before, like rebirth, turns out to be like a nightmare instead. Yeah, so this is the problem. Yeah, the problem is that we come from a deluded perspective. We don't see things according to reality. And because of that, we, don't really, we can't really tell whether rebirth is good or bad. First of all, you have to understand that reality. And this is why in Buddhism there's also a degree of confidence of faith, yeah, to take things on board. The Buddha says these things, okay, I don't know. So you kind of leave it open. But what you do know is that the beginnings of the path are very beautiful. Some of you have told me about the amazing, beautiful experiences you had in meditation here, and what a wonderful thing that is to hear. And then you know already that there's a lot on this path that is wonderful and marvelous. And then you feel inspired, at least by that much. And then you carry on. Well, if the Buddha knew about these experiences and he was able to teach methods that lead to these kind of experiences, boy, maybe I should take the rest of his teaching seriously as well. And that's what you start doing. You start to take it seriously. You start investigating it. And maybe it turns out that these things are true. That is kind of the right attitude to have with these very profound aspects of, of Buddhism. So I hope you are happy. You're probably not happy with that, but I hope you're happy anyway. <laughs> so if, if you're not happy, then just come back tomorrow and say, what? That wasn't what I was asking. And then we'll, we'll give it another try tomorrow. <laughs> okay. Um. Last question for tonight. You have said that meditation cannot remove defilements. Did I get this right? If not, how can they be removed? By reflecting at the end of each session, do we gradually develop wisdom which allows us to let go of the defilements? Your view would be appreciated with thanks. Okay, so defilements can be removed by meditation practice, but only very uh, refined defilements at the very end, just before you enter samadhi, those are the kind of defilements that you can remove. But most of the defilements of mind, body and speech are actually removed by reflecting in the right way. Yeah, so for example, if you want to be more pure in your conduct, if you want to be more kind, you have to have a reason for being more kind. You have to believe it's valuable. So you have to reflect on the value of kindness. Most of you have an idea of the value of kindness already, because that's why you're here. Otherwise you wouldn't be here. You already have some idea of that, but strengthen that. Reflect on it. Take it deeper. Take it also to the level of mind, how to think about other people. And then uh, as you understand the value of these things, the more you reflect on it, uh, the more you uh, understand that, uh, and you stand the danger in not being kind and doing bad things uh, uh, by looking at how you feel when you are kind compared to when you are unkind, for example. All of that then gives rise to this ability to be more kind in the world. Uh, so reflection is, a, is a, the most, when it comes to the basic kind of morality, even the morality of the mind, reflection is the way to get there. Think about things in the right way. Um, when it comes to the ref, very refined defilements of the mind that kind of stop us from going deeper in meditation, then uh, it happens in meditation, it happens also through reflection afterwards. Yeah? So you look at your mind, you see that you are stopping uh, your meditation is coming to a halt somewhere and you ask yourself why, what am I attached to? 
and uh, you you start to realize that you you know things you are holding on to maybe your body or whatever it is uh, that is actually stopping you from going deeper and sometimes you don't even know exactly what the attachment is because it can be quite subtle uh, uh, and then you try to just to develop the perception of impermanence, uh, of the sensual world being kind of dangerous and problematic. Uh, and you see whether that can help you to let go a little bit more and go deeper in your meditation practice. Uh. So uh, that is roughly how it works. Uh, yeah, and uh, so just uh, carry on. Uh, and very often it is... A lot of it has to do with how we live our ordinary life as well. If you are able to purify your, actually I shouldn't say, yeah, ordinary, whatever. Uh, our more, uh, yeah, ordinary, I guess, is right. Real is, is the problematic word. So if you, in your ordinary life, if you're able to develop these qualities more, it will come back to you in a very positive way when you go on retreat because you're actually building up all these qualities inside of you. And then when you come back here, bang, you get into some really nice states of meditation as a consequence. So how we live our life is just fundamentally connected to success in meditation practice. Okay, that is all for tonight. So again, have a nice rest, and we'll see you again tomorrow morning. Arang Sama Sambudo Bhagava Bodhang Bhagavantang Abhivademi Svakato Bhagavata Dhammo Dhammang Namasami Supati Pano Bhagavato Savakasango Sangang Namami <laughs>